What's up, y'all? Welcome to class. This is Diseducation. My name is Mignon. I'm a Black non-binary teacher. And I'm a Vietnamese-American teacher named Quinn. Together, we are looking at what it's really like inside U.S. classrooms and schools through our eyes as teachers of color. In other words, what's happening behind closed classroom doors? Because the reality is that U.S. education is burning, and students and teachers of color are the ones on fire. This is Diseducation. Last class, we talked about the problem women of color in the workplace as a helpful framework to understand the process of the broken teacher diversity pipeline. In other words, what is actually happening on the ground and in the buildings that pushes teachers of color out of education? We also talked a bit about the kind of red flags that can clue teachers of color into white supremacy that's functioning in our schools. This episode, we'll be exploring workplace culture in schools and how in many ways it parallels white supremacy culture. Last episode, we ended up stating what we saw when we returned to in-person schools. Timeliness, tardiness, and deadlines. School holidays. Quantity versus quality curriculum. Emphasis on objective impartiality. Seniority and hierarchy above all else. More essays, more homework, more assessments. Segregation of resource students and English language learners. Lightness over everything else. Norming of whiteness. Protecting white teachers over students of color. Denial of bias and racism. And stereotypes and microaggressions. We also talked last time about how you and I felt a kind of whiplash moving from distance learning to in-person school. And white supremacy was always present and functioning, but the distance learning format meant that you and I were more insulated from it. Returning in person, we began to feel that harm much more acutely. Mm-hmm. When we compare this to working online, we realized that there were a lot of things that actually made it easier for us as teachers of color. And, you know, just to be clear, we want to once again acknowledge that remote learning was hard on many people. It was difficult on working parents, on students who needed high levels of support. I mean, it was oftentimes difficult for students and teachers to build relationships. And yet, remote learning made it easier for us to mitigate right racism while working. I mean, I could turn my camera off during bullshit DEI professional development. I know that's right. And do that in person. (laughs) Um, And being in person made these differences really stark. Yeah, and we weren't the only people who felt that way. There was a Slack study during the pandemic, and I think it had over 10,000 respondents. And 97% of Black people preferred hybrid or remote versus 75% of white respondents in that study. Mm -hmm. The other thing that really stood out to me is that a lot of people who wanted to go back in person were citing collaboration as their motivating factor, <laughs> which right? Is prob- which is probably the reason why 97% of Black people said we don't want to go back. Literally, <laughs> you know, uh, collaboration with people engaging in racist behavior is not quite the positive draw for people of color, all right? And it's really, really telling that the very thing that white people want to go back in person for is directly harmful to people of color. We want to collaborate, too, But we don't want to do that at our own expense. Yeah, when you're being harmed. And I think one of the surprising consequences of remote teaching was that we could collaborate with our white colleagues because there were boundaries. Yeah. Right? A lot of people of color have talked about this. A article in The Stylist, Sobia, a professional of color, said, Once the pandemic hit and we were working from home, as bad as it sounds, I experienced such relief. Our conversations were limited to Zoom calls where we didn't really discuss much beyond the work, which was great for me. Um, And... And I, you know, I can really relate during Zoom, uh, during, you know, teaching during the pandemic. I didn't have to deal with happy hour. 
That also might just be because I'm an introvert. <laughs> um, but also, like, no water cooler talks, no teacher's lounge, where a lot of, like, microaggressions against you and students are heard, stuff like that. Like, we got to avoid all of that. I remember one of the things I heard the most uh, when I first started joining the school we taught at and, you know, at the water cooler and the teacher's lounge, everybody, the minute I said I was Vietnamese, they went, oh my gosh, I love Vietnam. It's so beautiful. The beaches are so blue. And they'd either talk about a vacation they had there or a vacation they're planning to take or want to take. I mean, to me, it is always kind of weird to see people reduce your ancestral homeland to their playground, considering that, you know, this country bombed it in the first place. Yeah, that's so true. I also want to pause and just say that Professionals of color in a wide variety of industries can probably relate uh, to how racism shows up in workplaces. And many of these examples that we've given, uh, while they have an impact, are not these extreme examples of people being called slurs or things like that. But the difference when we're talking about how this functions in schools, in education workplaces, is that what we are seeing, these small harmful moments are also showing up in curriculum, are also showing up in the way these same teachers are grading, are also showing up in the way these same teachers are disciplining kids, are pushing kids out of classrooms. What we're talking about is how we're seeing race show up for us is the same way that race is going to show up and hurt kids. Mm -hmm. It's about the kids. Yeah. And I appreciate what you've shared in particular, Quinn, because... This is an example of how being in the physical building can actually be more harmful for teachers of color. You know, in that same article that you were referencing, I read about a woman who said that working remotely gives me so much space to focus on work, productivity, and my skills, and that I felt safer in my own space. And this woman said that um, her name was Olomogba. She said, I feel more guarded than ever. It's been tough. In the workplace, I still have a lot of anxiety. It's exhausting. And that really rings true, I think, for you and I, because when we don't feel racially traumatized all the time, we can work better. We have Mm. more energy and focus and time for the actual work. Yeah, which means we're better teachers for our students. Exactly. There's no experience of working in school without that overwhelming presence of racism, which means that we have had no opportunity to work fully without that weight. Right. It's like trying to educate kids, trying to do this work with an arm tied behind our back. We've been talking about workplace culture and school culture. In U.S. public schools, these two are tied together. Schools are unique in that The way that staff members are treated is often indicative of how students are going to be treated as well, and vice versa. And so the values that we are seeing underpinning a school culture are really the same ones that underpin that workplace culture of a school. And what I think we realized is that that honeymoon stage that we were experiencing was a big fat lie. (laughs) The real culture was something much more nefarious. And we paid attention to the clues popping up here and there. But we couldn't see everything because schools and school districts lie. They are not always honest about what's actually happening in their schools, important histories around issues that have have been emerging in their schools. To be revealed later. Okay. When people aren't honest, we don't know what we're stepping into. And we don't know 
how we can be helpful, how to navigate the space. You know, it's kind of like these schools are greenwashing their racism. Mm -hmm. And particularly where we worked, I think that showed up. And, you know, we were in the San Francisco Bay Area. And here I think there is this kind of West Coast culture of faux liberalism, you know, that kind of white liberal vibe that is really dishonest and surface level. And it takes time for us to go beneath the surface and get to that reality stage. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I noticed was that a lot of the programming at the school and a lot of the talk looked really good, but was actually quite hollow. Yeah, for sure. I mean, some of the things I can think about when we're first hired, like buzzwords were being thrown around all the time, social emotional learning, trauma-informed approaches, um, unlearning, cognitive dissonance. Um, but really, we were just token hires. We were their mascots. They wanted faces of color. Yeah, and it's like there's a difference between diversity hiring and a diversity hire. Come on. And it's hard to see unless you've been there for a while. What do you mean by that? Can you expand, actually? Yeah, so when I think about it, you know, a lot of people weaponize the term diversity hire to say, you know, you person of color uh, don't deserve the job that you have, right? That's not true. Anytime a person of color is hired for something... They are, they are highly qualified and, in fact, in many cases, more qualified than other applicants. But I do think something does happen where we get a person who's extremely qualified, extremely effective, and institution says, hey, but we have this issue that we're trying to solve and we want to stick a black face on it or mm. we want to stick an indigenous face on it, right, mm. so that we can smooth over something else that's happening. That doesn't mean they're going to hire someone who's not qualified. It just means that they are looking for a solve. Yeah. Right? It's about the product. It's about an end result. Yeah. Right? It's kind of like checking out boxes or when what you're telling me, like the solve or the fix, like we're duct tape. They exactly. see us as duct tape. Exactly. Um, holding, you know, something in shambles together. Exactly. Versus diversity hiring, which is about a process. It's, all right, we want to prioritize diversity, equity, justice, inclusion in our institution. So we are going to rework our entire hiring process to make sure at every stage we are prioritizing diversity yeah. and equity, right? And so that may mean that a white person is hired at the end of the process, but there's more transparency. There's more opportunities, right? Yeah. It's not about the end result. There's real commitment. It's a total attitude shift that exactly. right, is is applied to every stage of the process. So what we're talking about is either a short-term band-aid or a long-term approach. Mm -hmm. And the scary thing is schools really believe Sometimes that they're all that. Yeah, it like, seems like they're lying to themselves. Yeah, they actually believe their own talk. It's crazy. Yeah, and it seemed like where we worked, folks were really overly optimistic and were trying to, like, sell us on this version of a school that didn't actually exist. They wined and dined us. They really did. They laid out the banquet. <laughs> if we're going with the relationship analogy, it's like when a date thinks they're a 10, but they're really a 2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're a 6, but they think diverse texts aren't a budget priority, they're so they're really a 2. <laughs> um, but they're lying, right? Either to themselves or to us. Either way, it's dishonest. And we realized that the things we saw over Zoom that were encouraging initially, the compassion, the care, the student-centered approach to education, they were actually contingent. Mm. It showed up during the pandemic, during Zoom school, because white society was not exempt or immune from the problem at hand. However, once issues no longer affected folks, people who used to care no longer gave a shit. Whiteness can't see what doesn't affect it. COVID affected everyone, so people could see it and cared. And what this shows me is a genuine lack of imagination, of empathy, compassion, and care. This is the real narrow-mindedness 
of white supremacy. And everything we've described so far about school culture, about workplace culture, is really white supremacist culture in action. And if we were doing Race 101 on this podcast, we'd talk about the, you know, like NEA definition of white supremacy, you know, political ideology, systemic oppression. We'd be looking at things that perpetuate and maintain big word, big word, big word. social, political, historical, <laughs> industrial, right? We'd be doing all that, but that's not what we're doing. In practice, white supremacy is really just a lie. It isn't all the things we see, hear, and do. It's in the way we trust, who we value. It lies and says that there is only one way to be. White supremacy is a lot like obscenity. You know it when you see it. Or at least for us, as people of color, we know it and we can see it. What we're seeing is that school workplace culture is really just synonymous with white supremacist culture. Yeah, the Venn diagram of school culture and white supremacist culture is really a circle. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because it's not just that some things overlap. When these cultures are one and the same, this is what you get. You get a sense of urgency. Defensiveness. Focus on quality over quantity. Worship of the written word. Belief that there's only one right way. Commitment to paternalism. Either or thinking. Power hoarding. Fear of open conflict. Individualism. Belief that progress must be bigger and more. Belief in objectivity. And the right to comfort. This is school culture. This is white supremacy. And we can't talk about workplace culture without discussing how it's used as a measure to hire and retain teachers. Schools want to know if you vibe with the people in the culture if you are a culture fit. Are your values our values? Is your lifestyle our lifestyle? Do we look at the world similarly and do we make decisions similarly? Mm -hmm. And when school culture is white supremacist culture, the values and norms are those tenets of white supremacy that we just listed. When people are asking if you're a culture fit for the school, what they're really asking is, are you willing to uphold white supremacy in the same ways that we do? Mm -hmm. Are you willing to uphold perfectionism, either or thinking, power hoarding, and more? And that means that failure to culture fit is really code for too black, too brown, too Asian, too queer, too offensive to whiteness. That's the kicker. When a school's culture is white supremacist, then by design, it forces teachers and students to either be a cultural fit or to be penalized if they opt out, resist or submit, mask or unmask. There is no other option. When teachers in Minnesota were striking, they had a slogan. Teachers' working conditions are student learning conditions. And that mantra rings true. White supremacist school culture violates the right to education for all students. Students of color should not be penalized for their distance from whiteness or their resistance to white supremacy. And yet they are. And so are teachers of color. When all the other teachers are white, they expect you to abandon your culture and be white too. But if you're black, neither bill works. How can you submit to white supremacy when your mere presence is viewed as an act of aggression? So it's not just that assimilation is bullshit, it's that it's impossible. I think you're saying something really interesting here. Do you think that that only pertains to the Black community? No, I think assimilation is a scam for everyone, but there are degrees of privilege that do exist. Mm. And the privilege piece is a bit of a farce, but it has real 
consequences. I mean, I think these degrees of privilege aren't just a farce, right? Like, I agree with you, they totally exist, but they are designed by whiteness to pit communities of color against each other. Mm -hmm. um, Kathy Hong, an author in Asian American Studies, says that Asians are the next in line to be white is the same thing as saying Asians are the next to disappear. So if you think about it, there's this pressure, this idea that Asian Americans have this privilege of assimilating. In many ways, it's also an act of cultural suicide. And all of this has incredible impacts on students. We know this intimately. We've observed our students of color, and we've been students of color in the United States. <laughs> yeah, we have. Okay? Not much has changed. And so we've seen it from both sides. We've seen how school leaders, both white and leaders of color, have harmed teachers of color to preserve their kind of tenuous position in a white supremacist school. We've seen white teachers and teachers of color harm mm -hmm. students of color, right? Funnel them into the school to prison pipeline. And, and we're not immune. We are not immune. We are not perfect teachers. We have made mistakes. We will continue to make mistakes and try to do better. But in a white supremacist school culture, that harm that we're talking about is magnified for students of color and teachers of color. Yeah, and I, I really relate to what you said, that we once were students too. So we understand this both as teachers and once as students. Um, and when I think back to my experience being a student of color in U.S. public education, I remember feeling all the time to pressure to code switch, to mask, and it can feel like splinging. It can lead to internalized racism. There is a huge psychological cost of feeling like you have to be two different people all the time. And it follows you into adulthood. It's traumatic shit. Yeah, thinking about being a student, I saw teachers of color flee. The first black teacher I ever had left so soon. I mean, and it seemed like she just fled. The only openly queer teacher I ever had was, the scuttlebutt was that he was asked to leave for being openly queer. And all of this taught me that what I was experiencing as a black kid was going to continue into adulthood. And that was really demoralizing and frankly, frightening. Mm -hmm. And it makes us ask ourselves, what happens to historically marginalized students? They learn that being themselves is a problem, that they're not safe at school. And when white supremacy guides their education, students can become adults who continue to perpetuate white culture as the best and only culture to emulate. This creates an environment in which white kids can turn into white supremacists and students of color can ultimately end up committing cultural suicide. Thank you for joining us as we explore how education is failing teachers of color. We believe education can serve all, not just the few. We envision schools as sites of possibility in education as radical care for community. If this episode sparks something for you, email us at diseducationpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at DisEdOfficial. Check out the poll in our bio or in the show notes. Subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Finally, thank you to Anthony Hernandez at The Grill Studio for engineering this episode. And thank you for listening. Next time, we'll discuss how teachers of color are set up to fail. See you next class.